right. Well, once again, I'm not 100% sure when you're watching this or when you're listening to this, but welcome back to another Learning Tech Talks where we are continually exploring the landscape of learning and workplace technology and all things learning. I am recording part two of trends to watch in 2023. So if you haven't seen the first one, a little few housekeeping items, if you have not seen the first one, I would highly recommend you go back, take a look at that one. In that one, really where this all started is I'm taking a bit of a sabbatical. So before I went out, I wanted to record a few things that were just running through my head and have some additional content to put out there for you as you step into the new year and get ready to think about things. And in episode one, and so the whole point of this couple cautions, clarifications on this one. First of all, one, the goal of this to highlight some of these things is not to say all these things I'm calling out are things I would advocate. Everyone should just go thoughtlessly pursue and chase in 2023. I don't want this to be a shiny bobble trends series that's telling everybody these are the things that you should do in 2023, but more highlight some of the things that I'm seeing that I think are adding tremendous value or have potential, have a lot of potential that are either not being used, are emerging, or just vastly underutilized. So just calling some attention, spotlighting some of the things that if you're thinking about, hey, what are some things that we may want to consider, some capabilities we want to explore, you can do that. Now, in episode one, I focused on the ability or the opportunity for us to do more with video. I highlighted the opportunity with us to think more deeply about microlearning, both from a design standpoint and more theoretically and how it's actually augmenting and supplementing what we do in our work. I talked about the consumer experience and the user experience and how we're thinking about that and what does that look like in terms of an overall look at uh, the end user experience from a technology standpoint and how we're architecting that in a really positive and meaningful way focused on digital adoption tech, which I think is closely tied to that previous one. And then also went into some of the opportunities we have to engage with learning and development as a service. So that was talking a little bit more about where there might there be opportunity for us to outsource some of the work we do, not to replace what we're doing internally, but to supplement and augment it uh, to help us be more effective with speed, scale, keep up with the pace of business. So those were those. So if you haven't watched that one, I would highly recommend you go back. If you look on the YouTube channel, uh, I actually have broken that into chapters. So if some of those stand out and you go, I'd really be curious about that one, you can go find that without having to navigate through the whole thing. Today, I'm going to take on another five, which I will highlight what those five are. So if you're watching, you can see those in the chapter. Uh, but I'll give you a heads up on this. So if you're listening live or just listening on a podcast, you know what's coming up on that. Uh, but before I do that, if you have not already joined the Learning Sharks community, I'm going to make a plug for that and say, hey, go out, join the community. It is at, ah, shoot, I don't even know if I have it. Maybe I do. Let me see. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah, look at that. There it is. Community.learningsharks.com. So if you're not part of that, join that one. And if you did, if you're listening to this, you're not part of that, you actually would have gotten access to these recordings before you're watching it, if you're watching it live now. So anyway, there's an incentive to that. Okay. So to close this out, let me transition over to this. Let me give you an overview of what the five are that I'm going to talk about. Uh, so the first one is this whole idea of conversational AI. Really, I'm going to focus more on the nudging and chatbots portion of that. I'm going to then, the other one I'm going to focus on is audio and AI coaching. So these two are pretty closely related, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference and how I'm thinking about those and why we should be exploring them for different use cases and different purposes. I do want to dig into the skill analysis and analytics piece. I, If I have enough time, I may actually do a completely separate episode just on why do skills, why does the skills conversation matter to us as L&D? To me, this is one of those areas where I see lots of conversations on skills happening, but I don't know that we're always connecting the dots on why does this matter other than we know skills matter for learning and development, but how are we seeing it in the bigger ecosystem in the bigger picture? So I, I may, I, I don't know if there's an interest, uh, but I I may do that if I have some time. But I'm going to talk specifically about the analysis and analytics piece, which I've seen a lot of growth in. 
The other one is I, I don't think I could do a things to watch in 2023 if I didn't at least hit on responsive, immersive technology. And I'm calling it that for a very specific reason. So I'll get into the immersive tech space and talk a little bit about why we should be paying attention to that and at least thoughtfully considering it. And then I'll close out with automation of content development and some of the things that are changing around the content dev and experience standpoint. So that's going to be the overall general flow. If you want to stay, watch the whole thing, or you can jump to the pieces that matter. So let's kick off. Let me take a drink here. Let me kick off with the conversational nudging and chatbots. This one is something that sometimes when I get into conversations with folks and ask, are you exploring chatbot or conversational? It could be conversational AI. There could be a conversational AI engine on the back of this chatbot. There may not. And I think that's a distinction to make is you don't necessarily have to. This is something that you may want to be thinking about if you're thinking about this is just because you want to do chatbots doesn't necessarily mean you have to get into conversational AI and some of the really robust tech solutions. You could, but really what we're talking about is kind of more this idea of how are we actually nudging or encouraging people? And even with the chatbots, there's two ways that you could look at this. I think a lot of times when we think about chatbots, we think about it in the I'm on a web page and there's a little button at the bottom that says, you know, how can I help you? That kind of thing, which that is certainly one component that we could consider. I don't know necessarily, I could be swayed, but I don't know how much that component really weighs heavily on the L&D function. Uh, if we have that capability, to me, that's where, going back to the digital adoption platform of episode one, to me, that's where I think there's some opportunity for us to do that, to create a digital assistant that allows people where they are in systems to potentially ask questions and say, hey, I need help with this because you have some contextual information on the person. They're in this system. They're doing this activity. You know, is there an opportunity for us to do that? That's how I think a lot of people think when they think chatbot. They think of that obnoxious thing on a web page that's constantly hassling you like, hey, are you trying to buy something? Do you want me to help you close out your shopping cart? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more... How are we actually thinking of augmenting and improving our capabilities of a learning experience with these nudges that are coming from us, but some engine that we've programmed on the back end, whether that's AI or whether it's manual, something that we've pre-programmed to be almost a conversation thread that then is being pushed out to somebody, ideally through, if you're doing this I mean, again, I don't want to say if you're doing this well, because you could do this well and not do it this way. But one way that's really effective is how are you actually reaching people in the tools that they're in? So text messaging, Slack, Teams, things like that, where you're going, we know we're in these tools. We know we're trying to get them to do this. We may either want to augment them in the flow of work they're in, or we may actually want to break that flow of work to get them to step out of it for some purpose, um, for something that we're trying to accomplish. And I think this is something that, Sounds super, super, super technical that when I've talked to people, sometimes people have shied away from this because the thought of it sounds like, one, people struggle to either think of the use cases. How might I actually be able to use that? How would that actually fit into our mix? Because again, I think sometimes we're thinking about the Amazon help bot, bot that's asking you, you know, do you want to do this? Yeah, that may be one where you go, I don't know that we're really doing a lot of that. Although if you step into the digital adoption space, you may be more, but then that's taken care of. What I'm talking about is, let me flesh this in terms of an example, okay? If we have a leadership cohort or new hire experience, and we know that things are ideally happening on a certain timeline, but we don't have people under our umbrella the whole time. We don't have complete control of them. They're doing their work too, and they're in their flow of life. But along the way, there are certain nudges that we want to be pushing along the way based on what we hope they are doing to make the most of this experience. Because obviously we've designed these experiences with intention. We've designed them a certain way to work a certain way, to lead to a certain set of experiences and things to hopefully ultimately drive behavior change or development of skills. In order for that to happen, sometimes people need a nudge, a push, a shove. And this is something that we can do with a lot less work then I think sometimes we realize. 
and being able to create, and I've, I've had a couple folks on learning tech talks that specialize in this area. So if it's something that you're going, that sounds interesting, let me know. I'm happy to share. I won't do it here and make kind of a public proclamation of, of who you can work with. But there are some companies out there that are doing this really well and creating these automated workflows that can reach people at certain times through very simple channels like a text message or a Slack channel or things like that. And you might go, like what? Like how would we actually use that? So to just give an example of this, if you were looking at like, let's say your new hire program and you know you've architected a new hire experience and it ultimately hopefully goes along these pathways and you ideally have these things structured because new hire isn't just the first day, it's the first X number of months at your company, you may think, hmm, how can I actually ensure that people are doing these things or they're having these experiences that hopefully create this really positive experience? Like, are they meeting with their manager? Have they had a chance to connect with this? Are they doing, you know, did they get a chance to see this resource? Things like that. We can actually be pre-programming that experience and then pushing that out to people, not only for the sake of nudging them to do things, but actually also capturing feedback and seeing things. So as that example, have you met with your manager? If you know that should have happened within the first week or two, you know, have you had a sit down one-on-one -on -one discussion with your manager? You could set up this conversation engine to be engaging with your new hire throughout that experience so that they get a text message that asks them that question. Have you had a chance to do that? If the answer is yes, you know, great. Now you know, and you can start to see, well, from a data standpoint, these things are happening. If it's no, not only is it a chance to capture that data point, but it's also a chance to nudge them to go have that conversation and provide them maybe with a resource. Maybe you have a new hire manager conversation guide, something that you've created as a learning professional that says, hey, this is designed to help you have a really positive, well-structured conversation with your manager in your first two weeks. Well, what better way to do that and not assume that the only way that's going to happen is for them to be following along in the LMS learning pathway or their LXP pathway. Well, why not check and then reference them back to those resources that you may have put in that pathway while at the same time giving them, them that little shove to do the thing that you want to do. And I think this is a capability vastly underutilized in our field. And the number of companies, while there's not a ton of them out there that are doing this, there are enough that are doing this at a very low cost to an organization. So if this is something where if you're a smaller business or maybe budgets are tight. I know we're going through a recession and, and a lot of times things are tight. If this is something you're going, we just don't have that kind of luxury. That's the thing for big fortune F, you know, whatever companies, it's actually not. It's actually something you can do extremely, extremely light. And you don't even need to stand it up super complicated. Now, can you get these things to be a true conversational AI engine on the back end where you can ask questions and you can fully interact and you can do all this? Sure, you can. You can go to that level. You can even go to the level of where you integrate it in with your other systems. And if certain things aren't happening, it's triggering things to automatically push these nudges along the way. You can, but I would. what I would want to encourage people to do is not stop just because you can't go that far with it. A simple, simple, simple conversation structure that can then be pushed out through channels where people are actually doing the work is actually a really effective way to connect with these people where they are, give them the nudges, the pushes that they need to do the things that we want them to do. We put so much time and energy into these experiences we design, and then we put them in one, one place, expecting everyone to go through that. And sometimes with the best intentions, people would, they just don't think about it. And so whenever we can think of opportunities to reach people where they are. I talked about that in the last episode about reaching people where they are instead of requiring them to come to us. I think that's a big shift we need to make. And this is another way that we can start to do that, where we can start to, in our program architecture, create these multi-dimensional components where we say, yes, we have our pathway. Yes, we have our content. Yes, maybe we have our micro learning layer of additional resources. But how do we actually nudge and push those to people or encourage them to go to different places to find them or make the changes or take the actions we want them to do? Well, we can then thread through that
this nudge chatbot capability that then is actually pushing them and telling them and guiding them along the way in a really thoughtful and intentional way. And again, something that can be done without a high cost to the organization and really low technical skills as well. This isn't something where you may go, oh, well, we just don't have internal resources who are highly technical and skilled at designing conversational AI engines. Yeah, well, you and most of the industry. So I think that's one of the things that is actually much more accessible than people realize and something that I think has a ton of potential. And I've seen it have huge potential in actually getting people to do the things that we want them to do. There's a science and psychology behind this. And this is where I will just caution people. Don't approach this recklessly. I mean, you need to do it very thoughtfully because you can also annoy the crap out of people if you're constantly pestering and bothering them with a million nudges for everything that you want to do. That's going to annoy people. But if you do this well, I mean, I just even think, right? Like, I know if I've been sitting too long, not because I don't know that it's good for me to get up and walk around. Sometimes I just forget and get distracted. And my watch buzzes and reminds me, hey, you haven't stood up for a bit. Get up and walk around a little bit. Okay. Those kinds of things are the ways we can think about what are those little behaviors, those little shoves that we want to push to people at certain times, at certain increments, based on certain responses. Did this happen? It didn't. Hey, maybe take this step and we know we can actually improve your experience. So huge opportunity area for us that I think many organizations, every organization should at least be considering exploring, is this something that you have the capacity to expand what you're doing? All right, now another one that is, I would say a little bit more on the emerging side. There are some companies out there doing this. They aren't typically in the L&D space though. I'm seeing it in other areas, other functional areas, but, with the improvements in NLP and NLU in terms of transcription, I think is really just one of the biggest things. The ability for machines to transcribe conversation with a very high degree of accuracy and also assess a lot of what's in there in terms of sentiment, tone, things like that, even just because it can detect different voices very quickly and assess, it can start to look at and maybe you'll see where I'm going with this, can start to see how much are different people in a conversation, how many people are talking, what's the way in which they're talking to the people they're talking to, and all of that. And something that I actually am talking to a few folks who are really leaning into this in terms of AI coaching around these areas, and this isn't necessarily, so to all my coaches out there who listen to this, this is not a threat to you in terms of what, so you're suggesting people don't need coaches? No, that's not it. However, when it comes to putting performance in the flow of work and nudging people, this is a really exciting capability that is rising, growing, and becoming highly effective, and I think attainable for a lot of organizations. So what I'm talking about is just let me let me play this out in terms of how this can work and then then we'll we'll go from there. So essentially what I'm talking about is AI can be so if you just even look at like a company like Otter AI, okay? And they're not doing this, but this is something they play in the space of Otter AI can join one of your meetings and capture the transcription and it's even getting to a point where it can pick out highlights in the conversation and and then create a place where people can go back and review this stuff so that you don't have to have a note taker and all of this. Now, is it completely replacing somebody taking intentional notes? No, but is it doing this kind of thing? Okay. So you take that foundation and think about the fact that AI can now listen to conversations. And again, you could use it in meetings, or even you could just go to a potential portal and record yourself doing something. AI can then very quickly and accurately analyze and assess that and give feedback back to you and tell you, how are you doing with this? Something I do and something that's actually helped me a lot. All of my learning tech talks, this is not one of the tools I'm talking about, but all my learning tech talks, I throw into Descript and I get a transcription of it. And in some ways, it actually gives me feedback. I actually notice and consistently see some of the things I do when I talk and have changed my behavior around it. One of them is, just to give an example, one of them is when I get really excited, sometimes I repeat a word I'm about to say. And 
And I learned that by looking back at my transcriptions and seeing when I get excited, I repeat the same word. And so by doing that, I was able to take the feedback. Now that's not a feedback tool. I just happened to see it by looking at a transcription of my conversations and being able to see that this is something I do. And now I intentionally think about that and take a pause and a breath before I do it. Now, do I do it sometimes still? Yes. And anybody who listens to me, now that I've said it, you'll probably pick up on it. <laughs> but you think about this on steroids and the possibilities that we can now have technologies that either separately from existing conversations that are happening, maybe going back to, again, recording something and then having it analyze and give you feedback on you use too many filler words, you went too fast, your tone was this, things like that. That's one application of it. But you think about this in terms of feedback in the flow of work, and this is where there's some platforms doing this, not in the L&D space that I've seen a lot of, but in other areas, sales, call centers, things like this, where it's analyzing a conversation and pushing nudges. This kind of goes back to this whole nudge theory thing. Nudges to you, telling you, hey, here's some feedback for you in real time. Now, this is something that I think has huge potential and I'm seeing it start to emerge as a rising category that I think we should be paying very close attention to because the opportunity for us to tap into one of the beautiful and kind of scary things about everything being digital now is that you're creating content, but you're also creating this digital thumbprint of everything that you're doing, which means it can then be analyzed and you can get feedback on that. So thinking about this in other ways, if you think about one of these engines on a meeting tool, you now have the potential to say, we could create real-time leadership communication feedback to someone as they're in a meeting. Maybe they're having a meeting with doing a one-on-one -on -one with someone and you can actually start to see what kind of language are you using with this person? Are you giving them space to respond? How are your questions being asked? Now, again, I'm talking a little bit more blue sky of where this is going, but I'm, I've talked with and am talking with some companies that are actually playing in this space. And I think there's huge, huge potential for this in terms of coaching and feedback in the flow of work. Uh, there's an organization I won't mention, but one of the things that they're doing as they do some of their live meetings is they're exploring the possibility of putting an engine in it that actually shows the dynamics of how, how are the people in the meeting, how much are they talking so that you can actually see visually when people are dominating the conversation in a meeting so that you can then see that. And if you're the, if you're the culprit, you can back off, you can pull back and open the floor for more people to speak, things like that. If you're someone who's you're not even on the map. You can know, hey, my voice isn't even being heard. I need to speak up, things like that. When you start to think about the things we need to change human behavior and guide people to the right things, this possibility and this potential, in my opinion, is huge. I think it is tremendously huge. Is that even a phrase? Anyway, I think there's so much potential for that, to be able to change the way we coach and guide and again, nudge people. You, I think about the example I gave of myself and when I get excited, repeating words, just I repeat it. That's not something I intentionally think about. Filler words are another one. I remember early in my career, I got some coaching on filler words and how to just be slower in speaking and being more thoughtful to help reduce filler words. Do I still do them sometimes? Absolutely. I think everybody does. But some of these things, they're not an intentional thing. Sometimes it's just an awareness. Sometimes it's a, I don't think I'm doing it. So having this ability to have something in your flow, reminding you that you're doing it is huge. And I think this is a potential we need to watch for. I think we need to do more. I feel like audio is something that we are vastly, vastly underutilizing. And it goes back to what I was saying with video in episode one. I think audio is in that same vein. Audio and video, we're not doing enough with audio and video from a development and a learning standpoint. And the thing is, if you look at consumer behavior, it is a huge way consumers are consuming content. Podcasts are one of the most prevalent 
resources for people when it comes to content consumption. Yet in a corporate setting, how many people can say, yes, I can consume audio content on some of the latest things going on in the organization? I mean, how often is that even a thing? Very minimally in many of the organizations I talk to. So again, I think this whole rise in audio is going to be something that we need to be watching, need to be thinking about in terms of how might we be able to do more around audio in terms of not only a communication and development channel for us to push out content, but how could we be using the audio that's actually happening, that's now being happened, now being happened, now happening on digital channels that can be monitored and analyzed. To, how can we then take that, shape it and use it to nudge and push and grow and develop our workforce in really positive ways? Now, like with anything, I think we need to be careful in this area because there's the whole ethics side of it. There's the whole data privacy. I mean, there's a lot of things that we need to be careful of. Again, can this be overwhelming for people? Yes. So we need to think about it carefully. But in terms of a capability that is rising and there's a lot of potential for what the work we do and the overall development of employees, I think it's significant and something we should be watching. And I know I will certainly be watching and planning on doing more with this as things move forward. All right. So transitioning over to number three, let me timestamp this here. Uh, Skill analysis and analytics. I want to talk about this in two different components because there's actually two sides to this coin. So the first one is around, how do I want to approach this? Um, yeah, I said I was probably going to do a separate episode just on why do skills matter for L&D. So let me just focus on the skill analytics piece that several years ago, two years ago, I've been doing learning tech talks for three, just over three years. Two years ago, I highlighted in one of my episodes that one of the areas that I feel is vastly, and I still feel like there's a lot of opportunity in the market, is people doing quantifiable skill analysis at speed and scale. I mean, yes, there, there's always been assessments and things like that that try and assess people from a personality standpoint, sometimes in skills, but a lot of times it's been limited to hard skills or things that are really, I hate to say easy to assess because nothing's easy to assess, but easier to assess. Like, do you know how to do this hard skill type of a thing? Sometimes soft skills are a little bit harder. Although going back to what I was talking about, about audio and AI coaching, I think that's going to get a lot easier here in the coming years. But when we think about skill analysis, this is usually when you talk about the skills conversation happening right now in organizations, one of the biggest opportunities and I saw some research that was put out by Deloitte that said only 10% of organizations feel that they have an adequate, something like adequate skill library or skill profile of their workforce. And even in the conversation, I was in, engaging in it on the conversation thread. I would bet if you were to cut that 10% and actually dig underneath the surface of like, is it comprehensive? Is it verifiable? Is it something? I bet that number would just shrink way down. And this is something a couple of years ago, I was saying, come on vendors, like we've got the capability. We can triangulate. There is so much digital data that we are creating as people, even if we don't realize it, the AI and machine learning has to be getting to a point where we can start to quantifiably start to triangulate what are people good at based on some of pulling all these disparate data sources together and actually creating a bit of a skill blueprint. That is coming. And it's in some regards here, I can think of a handful of companies off the top of my head that are really specializing in doing this in different ways. I've a couple of the ones that I'm looking at and have talked to, they're doing this in different channels. They're doing it in different fashions, the way they're verifying in this. But this is a rising thing that I think needs to rise to help address this skill crisis because we can keep trying to develop skills all we want. But if we're doing it based on our hunches, our gut feels, what people self-assess, 
it's not going to work. And I think this is where the skill analytics piece is really, really, really important because we can actually do and triangulate some of these skills for people. And actually we are getting much better at identifying what are people actually capable of doing. And we can do that based on the work they're doing, how work is getting done, all these other things. And some of them are doing this. Uh, and just to talk about some of the different channels. So if this is something you're hearing or you're exploring, or again, you can reach out to me. I'm happy to share off camera some of the things uh, in more detail of who and how they're doing it. But two of the biggest areas that I'm seeing this grow around skill analysis is one, some are using AI, like I said, to triangulate heavy workforce trends. You know, you think about all these workplace tools we're using, they're all capturing massive amounts of data on us. How we interact with people, the frequency by which we do things, how frequently, I mean, even the thing with the AI listening stuff, it's listening to all this stuff and capturing data on how we do things. And we create a ton of data that's out on the internet. I mean, if you were to look up Christopher Lind on Google, you could get a pretty good view into who I am, what I do, what I like to do, what I'm capable of, just even from that. So there's a lot of this data that's out there. So some companies are really focusing on aggregating that and then using AI to help triangulate what really do you have in your organization. So some are doing it that way. They're, they're doing all this stuff. Others are focused more on proven assessment techniques that are actually assessing. And I would say this is probably more the traditional way of doing it where they have a distinct approach to assessment that they use to assess people's skills and their capabilities. And they're actually using this, but they're scaling it. And I think that's one of the things that technology is allowing. So both have a heavy lean in on technology because one is using AI and machine learning to capture massive amounts of data on people and make sense of it in a way that can then be triangulated back to, okay, here's what's actually in your organization and what people can do. The other one is, well, we're actually asking people to do things and demonstrate some of this stuff. And then we can actually start getting a skill blueprint on this. So I think this is an important one for us to think about because going back to the skills conversation, which I won't dig into this because it'd be an hour long conversation, <laughs> conversation, monologue. It'd be an hour long monologue just of why this matters, how we need to think outside our functional lines, some of the different implications and all of this. But at the end of the day, this should be really important to us because one, it's a huge opportunity looking at the data. Most companies don't have this figured out. So we talk about wanting a seat at the table. What better way to have a seat at the table than to come to the table with a solution to a problem that our organizations have that they cannot figure out how to solve? This to me is a huge opportunity for us to stand up and go, hey, everyone here is trying to solve this skill stuff. We have identified a way that we can figure out what skills we have and don't have and what we need to build. And then also fuel our pipeline of where do we need to focus? I think one of the biggest risks in skills right now is without this data, we're taking our best shots in the dark at what we think needs to happen. And by having a true skill heat map and database of what do we actually have in the organization? Where is it? What can we do with it? We can actually start to prioritize, well, what skills do we actually need? We can get more predictive in figuring out what skills we need to develop for the future. How, where do we need to hone skills because one of the things that comes up a lot, I've, I've been in a number of conversations where the debate is around, are there really new skills or are we just repurposing old skills? And I think there's a lot more repurposing of old skills than there is creation of new skills. If you really think about it, a lot of stuff, there's not a whole lot new under the sun. It's a repackaged version of something that we've done before. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of, but what better way to start to see, Hey, where are these transferable skills? Where do they exist so that we've got a shorter gap to close in our workforce? And what does that gap look like? And what do we need to do to build a bridge across that gap? So to me, the possibilities of this are huge, not just for us in L and D, but much broader in an organization. And the reality is this is something that can happen quickly and consistently. And I think that's a really important piece to highlight because 
one of the challenges is historically the way skill analysis was done. And I think this is one of the reasons the traditional way of doing a, you know, historical assessment, the reason that requires tech to keep it up is if you did a skill assessment and if you did this 40 years ago or something like that, it may have more durability because the skills may not have been changing quite as quickly and adapting again, are they new skills? I would debate not really as much as repurposed versions of the existing skills, but now these skills are evolving, adapting, they're changing on a really, really rapid pace. And so to be able to keep pace, you can't have a blueprint from three years ago and think that that's going to get you there. And I think that's where AI and then some of these rapid assessment tools are actually doing a much better job at keeping that current because I've seen organizations over the years, they do these massive efforts. They take a huge amount of time, cost a ton of money, and then you get it. And by the time you get it, it's already out of date. And so now you're acting on out of date intelligence. And I think that's where this is really huge in terms of being able to have current intelligence, be able to move quickly and actually then prioritize on the things that matter most. So a lot happening here. I'm happy to see that this has grown because several years ago, honestly, I felt like, is anybody really focusing on this? And I get there were some real legitimate challenges to doing this, but now I feel like there are some players out there who are doing some really interesting things. And this may be something if your organization, which would be most organizations, is approaching the development and skill conversation from a non-data-driven approach, this is an opportunity for you to step up to the plate from a having a seat at the table and say, hey, I think rather than us just running really fast and not really know where or why we're running, uh, to say, I have a solution that will help us run in the right direction and focus on the right things. So something to consider. I think this is one that, uh, depending on where you are, again, any of these things, am I going to say, hey, everyone, here's here's 10 things everyone should be doing in 2023? No, it is about priorities and recognizing you've got to control what you can control. But this is one that I think you should at least be one aware of and exploring as a possibility and considering in your priorities and knowing that it's a possibility and it can be done quickly, effectively, and um, really have a large impact. All right. Next up, let me tag this time-wise. So immersive tech. I couldn't talk about things to watch in 2023 without talking about immersive tech. I feel like this conversation is in a bit of a swirl again. For a while, it blew up. There was a move that everything was going immersive. It's simmered down a little bit now, but I think it's one of these things we still need to be really careful that we don't let fall off of our radar for a similar reason to, well, actually a lot of the things we're talking about. Now, the one thing that I want to address first is there has been a lot of movement in the hardware space. The MetaQuest Pro came out at the end of 2022, and it was, at least from my perception, one of the first really viable devices that was showing what hybrid wearables could do. So the Medic Pro kind of bridged this gap between, well, do we need an AR device? Do we need a VR device? Well, why don't we just have a device that is capable of doing both? And I think this is where the hardware is moving really quick. It's, it's changing in size. It's changing in speed. It's capability. Uh, what it can do, it's bridging this gap between having to have multiple technologies and consolidating into one, which I think is really exciting. But for good reason, this can lead to a lot of organizations going, I don't know how deep we want to just throw ourselves into this when we aren't quite sure how this is all going to play out. Uh, the, the analogy that I use a fair amount is, I feel like the hardware space right now when it comes to immersive is kind of like the Pentiums in the late 90s, you know, where every computer that was coming out, it was like you basically had to sell your $2,000 home PC and buy another one because the one that came out was 
five times the speed of the previous one and using an outdated version just felt like I can't even function on this thing versus now the new iPhone comes out and you're like, well, do I want a slightly better camera type of a thing? It's, it's a little more viable to not have to stay as current with the hardware. So it's a legitimate pushback on, should we really go deep into immersive tech right now? I think the reason that we still need to stay very close to it is one, it is changing quickly. And two, this whole idea of responsive immersive technology is really, really growing. I've got a conversation coming up this year with, I can't remember, one of the companies is Tailspin. And we're going to be talking about this pretty deeply, about the importance of, as you're looking at immersive tech, considering responsive capability. Like, can this work on multiple devices? Can you switch to your phone, to your desktop, to a wearable without a whole lot of hassle? Like, you know, we think about, you think about this, just to give an example of where I think we're going to see this start to change here in the future. I can't remember. I'm not even going to try and say a number because I don't know how many years ago it was, but there was a time when we used to have to think really critically about, are we designing for mobile or are we designing for desktop? And I remember that was a big conversation in design in design meetings. And I was part of them where we would have to say, well, wait a minute, we really need to think about the audience and are they going to be consuming this content on their mobile phone or are they going to be sitting at a desk? Because you would truly design really, really differently depending on that. I almost feel like now we don't have that conversation anymore because responsive technology has made it kind of a moot point. You know, HTML5 just changed things to a point where it was like, well, if you just view it on a desktop, it does this. If you view it on mobile, it automatically responsively changes and optimizes for mobile. We don't have to put the intention behind this. I think we're going to start seeing, and we already are starting to see more of that happen in the immersive tech space, where instead of having to go, oh, is this person going to be sitting in a, in a headset or are they going to be looking at their phone or are they going to be sitting at their computer? Because then that added a third layer of complexity. Well, are they in a headset? Are they at a desk? Are they on a phone? I think, and I'm already starting to see the fact that that's becoming, not all the way, but it's becoming less of a question. And the experience isn't radically changing and we're not having to design or think completely differently about our technology approach because of that. And I think that's a really important step because the reality is the adoption curve of these technologies is, is all over the map. I mean, it is all over the map. There are some companies that they've gone headfirst into immersive and they've got headsets everywhere. And every time a new one comes out, they dump them and then they get all new ones. There are other ones that are going immersive. What? Like, what is the metaverse? And then people scattered all throughout in between. And so this whole responsive immersive tech is going to be really important. And if you are exploring immersive tech, which you should be, you absolutely should be. I think I said this and I don't even know which conversation I said it in. I probably said it more than once. But if you haven't bought a Quest 2 yet, just to even experience what's possible, go do it. Just do it. If you're a learning leader, you should have a Quest 2 or some sort of VR device to at least be able to say I'm familiar with it. But I think the important thing is this responsiveness is something that we need to be considering. And if you're looking at diving into immersive tech, you need to be thinking about, well, is this designed with that responsive capability in mind? And you need to ask that question because there are plenty of platforms out there that are not. And you could find yourself diving into something and quickly realizing you're making a bunch of time and money investments into something that is tied to one particular piece of hardware where you wouldn't want to be tied to the Pentium 1, you know, 133 megahertz back in 1990, whatever. And then, oh no, now the 333 just came out. The Pentium 3 just came out and blows this thing out. Oh, well, it doesn't work on that one. You don't want to find yourself in that space. So I think this is a really important part because you need to be considering that while at the same time recognizing the hardware space is changing. And I think the merging of AR and VR, this is significant. This, the smaller form size, form factor 
and the fact that the technologies are merging is significant because there were a number of conversations that I've had over the years where people have said, I just see more possibilities with AR. And to some degree, I agree. There's lower barriers to it. It's a little more practical because everybody's got a phone in their pocket and things like that. So I, I see where people are coming from when they say that. At the same time, I see certain things where I go, you can't do that in a non-virtual, fully immersive world type of a thing. And that led to this whole, well, okay, so which one am I going to choose? I'm going to choose the one that makes the most sense. Well, the fact that that's going away that you might have to not choose, I'm just, hopefully I'm getting across the impact that this emerging of these technologies and consolidation of these technologies has in terms of where we're going. Now, do I anticipate in 2023, we're going to see people walking around with headsets everywhere? No, we're not even, we're not close to that yet. I mean, we are not even close to that yet. Do I think it's completely unrealistic to think we couldn't be there in five, 10 years? I, I actually don't think it's unreasonable when we think about, I mean, back in the PC days, nobody thought any, everybody would have a phone in their pocket that was more powerful than the computers that put people on the moon. And here we are now, you know, type of a thing. So I don't think it's unreasonable to consider that we might get to that point uh, with, you know, 3D cameras and all this other kind of stuff. But I think it's important that we don't necessarily only have to think about it in terms of the hardware. There are a lot of opportunities that are within reach for organizations that don't have either the budget or just aren't comfortable launching into the immersive space with the hardware piece. And I get it. I totally get it. I think it's completely reasonable pushback. I think it's a completely serious consideration that you have to make, but I don't think that needs to mean you go, well, are we going to explore immersive or are we not? I think it's just more, how might we explore immersive and how might we consider the possibilities in our organization? Because at the end of the day, this is another one. I talked in episode one about some of the bedrock technologies. I don't know that immersive technology is quite in the category yet of bedrock technology, it will be, and it should be. When we think about the work we do, when it's tied to experience, skill is developed. Yes, it's developed through knowledge, but it's about taking that knowledge and translating it into skill through experiences. That is how we build skills. We build skills by taking our knowledge and applying it to something. Immersive technology allows us to do that in ways we literally, physically cannot do in the world sometimes. There are simulations, there are things that we can do that we physically just could not do. And the ability to give that to people where they are, going back to what I talked about in episode one about reaching people where they are. And I talk a lot about how sometimes it's important to pull people out of the flow of work while being as non-disruptive as possible. Well, how much less disruptive can you be than to be able to truly transport someone out of wherever it is they are to a completely different destination, yet they're still sitting exactly where they are. We're talking about, you know, omnipresent type capability that just was historically never possible. So I know I get really amped up about this. And even sometimes when I run in the VR circle, sometimes they're like, dude, it is not quite where your head's at. And I'm like, I know it's not there yet, but these possibilities are there. And they're well within reach. So I think this is something that for those of you out there who maybe have kind of written off immersive tech, kind of said, I just don't, I'll wait until everybody else gets this figured out and see if there's any merit to it. Just think about how many people would have invested in Google <laughs> back in the early days or Alphabet, whatever. How many people would have invested in it if they knew what was going to happen to it? How many would have invested in Apple if they knew where Apple was going to go? To me, that's the kind of thing in learning and development. We should be investing in immersive, not because of what it can do today, but because of what it will be able to do in the future. And that doesn't mean, don't, please, don't anybody take this to mean, so dump everything else you're doing and pour everything into immersive. No. But be intentional about investing time and resources into exploring what's possible. Stay current with how it's moving. Talk to people who are playing with it, who are toying with it. 
There is a lot of viability, even today, even though it's not at Google Alphabet state yet, it is Google Apple state, right? It's not there yet, but there are still some really, really viable capabilities now. So there's both short-term wins to investing in it. And at the same time, I think there's a lot of long-term play that's going to come along with it. So I will stop there because I know I get really animated about this one and close out uh, on the last one, which is some of the changes that I think is coming and is it's been coming for a bit, um, but I think it's going to come even harder and faster as we move you know into 2022, 2023 and beyond. And this is the impact of artificial intelligence on content development. I think this is something that we need to be very cognizant of. And again, going back to, I talked about learning as a service at the end of episode one. This is another one where we may need to be considering outsourcing to AI for some of the work that we do. Now, some people may hear that and say, you're a heretic. <laughs> How can you suggest we outsource to the machines? But the reality is there are certain things that we do and certain activities in our field that are better suited for AI than us. And that may sound controversial, but at the, rea the reality is I don't know a single organization in the world where the L&D team can literally say, you know what, we are, we're ahead of the game. We are hitting every need in the organization. We've achieved every goal. We've moved every skill. We've met every need that the business has. And I think this is where AI can actually help us from a content standpoint. Uh, if, you, if you're skeptical on this, because I remember you can look back on this. I'm trying to think if it was January of 2021. It might have been. I can't remember if it was January 2021 or January of 2020. I did an episode with CGS where we were showing, and the episode's called The Machines Are Coming or something like that. And we were exploring on the episode this application that they have. It builds storyline courses. AI builds storyline courses. Takes, takes it and it does the creative design. <laughs> And it was pretty powerful back then. I mean, it was impressive what it could do then. This is only coming more and more and more. Now, you may hear that and think, wait, what? Does that mean we're not going to play a role? Like anything, technology is only augmenting or supplementing the work we do. Now, does it mean that it may be coming for your role if you refuse to adapt and evolve to not be doing those activities that personally I think are better suited for artificial intelligence than a person, yeah, you are at risk if you're gonna stay stagnant and say, no, I'm only gonna do this. Like my job is to review massive amounts of information in an organization and then try and come up with a learning structure and a pathway for that. That is better suited for artificial intelligence to scan large amounts of data, determine what's relevant, what's not relevant and structure it in a meaningful way. Uh, it's going to be able to do that at a speed and scale that a human never could. Now, does that mean that we don't play a role in that? No, absolutely not. Because would I ever say, do I think in my lifetime, I'm going to see machines at a point where it's going to come back with a level of, <laughs> my daughter's here, by the way. Um, is it going to come back with a level of accuracy where we just don't even need to look at it? No. And I think that's where our role is going to continue to focus more on the higher order activity. And I think this is where in content development, AI is showing some real promise in terms of, hey, we need, just to give an example, we need a course that covers this topic. And can we get to a point, and are we at a point where, again, there's some technologies I've seen and have kind of toyed around with where you can kind of have it look into, can you create a learning pathway on this subject? And a machine can come back with, a lot of content and resources and automatically structure it in a way that goes, oh, that's a pretty relatively accurate pathway for what we're trying to accomplish. Now, the role of the instructional designer then is not gone because heaven forbid anybody ever just take that 
AI generated pathway and dump it into the LMS and go, I'm sure it's good enough. There may be some times where that is all you need to do because there's really not a lot of relevance or direct implications or you know negative outcomes of doing that. But really the role then becomes, well, let me see what the machines did and are there things and tweaks I would make? How can I maybe improve it? Where might I supplement or augment what it did? But I don't need to start from ground zero. And I think that's the part that we can start to look at. And there are a lot of content development tools that are picking up on this. Not enough. I think that's the important part. Um, but there are more and more that are starting to look into this and saying, how can we help designers rather than them starting from scratch, but how can we help them? How can we capture some information from them on what are you really trying to accomplish? And then how can we quickly pull together something that gives them something to react to that they can then tweak and modify and stuff like that? And I think that's one of the things that, is it all the way there? No, I can't, I will not even pretend to set a precedent that there's an authoring tool out there that you could just type in whatever topic you want and magically you would get a full content pathway that is immaculate and perfect and with minor tweaks, you would be able to do this. But are they getting to a point where they can come, you know, similar to think of, I'll, I'll give the analogy of like transcription, okay? So transcription used to be really bad. Like automated transcription was really bad. But before that, it was even more bad because it took forever, was extremely cost, it was cost prohibitive and all this other stuff. And then AI came in and it said, hey, we can get you like, 50% there and at least get pretty close. And you're just editing a automated transcription that isn't going to be perfect. Now that AI has gotten to a point where it's 80, 90% there, it's relatively close. And now the role is more to look at making fine tweaks to it. And maybe if you're doing localization, you're going to look for contextual or cultural components where you go, well, it translated it that way, but really the way we would frame it is more this way and things like that. We're going to put our cultural spin on this kind of thing. I see the same kind of thing happening with learning content where we're going to get to a point where rather than us starting from scratch and somebody gives us a blank PowerPoint deck and says, here, can you make a learning course on this? Which first of all, I don't know that that's what we should be doing anyway. But the point is, in theory, if somebody came and maybe it's really relevant content, here's this really relevant thing. It summarizes this initiative or this thing that we need to create some sort of like learning outcome based on. And instead of us going through the rote effort of trying to sort this whole thing out, figure out what's relevant, try and organize it in a meaningful way. I, I see in the coming years here, we're going to get to a point where we're just going to, something's just going to ingest that and it's going to spit something back to us that's relatively accurate. And our role is going to be fine tuning and contextualizing what it comes up with and augmenting. And then again, then we can focus on where does this fit in the broader learning experience in the multi-dimensional learning experience? Where does this fit to have the most impact and how are we using our time and resources, making sure we're pushing it to people at the right time that we're giving the appropriate context that we're following up that we're actually measuring. Is it having the impact that we want so we can decide whether we keep it or move it again, always, continuing to push us to more of this higher order activity, which to me is extremely exciting. And again, I think we're seeing, I'm seeing this in more and more content development tools. And it's something that we should be exploring. If you're evaluating content authoring tools, you should be looking at and asking questions around what kind of automation are you building into this? And that should be something that you should be at least exploring. So with that, those are the 10. This concludes the series, uh, part one and part two of things to be watching in 2023. Although I would say some of these things you'll probably want to be watching for a lot longer than the next year. Hopefully you found this helpful. Once again, if you're not part of the community, I would encourage you to join at community.learningsharks.com. And uh, I will be back from my content sabbatical here, depending on when you see this, probably in a few coming weeks. So it'll be good to connect with all of you. Again, live soon. I know that uh, streaming my live streams as pre-record isn't always the best, but 
Uh, I look forward to getting back and actually being able to engage with folks in real time along the way. So I hope you had a great one and have a great rest of your week. We will talk to you later.